good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message contains one of the most important and core tenets of the Christian faith, which is salvation by grace through faith. We will see how the Apostle Paul contrasts Jesus's headship with our own inability and how God has designed the transforming work of his grace as the key ingredient to recreate us into a new humanity. Thanks for listening. When I served overseas as a missionary, uh, I was a teenager uh, starting out, and then in my early 20s, uh, I served as the, the actually lead intern in the summer, working with all of the variety of teams that would come in. Uh, the majority of our work was masonry work. We worked with cement, we worked with concrete and block. Uh, I got a picture here of one time where I was working. I love this picture because I look so cool. And you can also see that I don't have any idea of using preventative um, equipment there. My uh, head, head ear protection is so squarely located on the top of my head, not over my ears as it belongs. Uh, in this particular picture, every now and then when we would pour uh, a column, you would set up your forms. And if you didn't have the, the ties just right, sometimes the wood would bow or sometimes one of the ties would come loose. And after the cement cured, you'd be left with this this out protrusion of an edge that needed to be chipped off. And so this is where we had a rotary hammer. And you take, the, you, you take it just like you can see in the picture and you chip away so that you could come back afterwards and have a nice, flat, clean coat of uh, spackle browning is what they call it over the edge and it looks beautiful well when teams would come uh, on one particular week they're they're usually brand new teenagers even like me um, and I remember uh, putting one of them in charge of the rotary hammer here now one of the problems that we have uh, working uh, there in the Caribbean is that many times the electricity would just go out and that's what happened on this one particular day uh, the, the electricity went out, and we, we didn't know it yet because it was the start of the, the morning work project, and so we handed him the rotary hammer. We showed him uh, what to do, and I left him so that I could go and work on getting the rest of the team all geared up for the projects that they were going to work on in the day. Well, as I came back with a few of the other interns, we saw this young man taking the rotary hammer and just hitting it against the wall. He was taking the whole thing like a chisel, and this guy had muscles, a big, tough guy, and we... What are you doing? What's going on? Well, I got this. Boop, chip, chip, chip. Now, what happens to a tool after the power goes out? You refer to it as dead, right? The, the tool is dead. And this guy was trying his best to do it. And sometimes when we didn't have electricity, uh, you would have tools that would die. That is not the right way to use the tool. Uh, It did not have the power that it needed to operate in the way it was designed. And so this verse came to mind, this from Zechariah 4, 6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You live in a world of a fallenness, of corruption, and all of humanity Uh, endures an estrangement from God based upon a nature in our flesh called sin. It has separated us from God, and therefore you no longer have power. You've been unplugged from the source of strength, and so you are, in essence, dead in your sins. 
But what God is doing through Jesus Christ is he is remaking humanity. Brand new. I want to make sure that you allow that concept to just sit in your heart for a moment. God's plan is to remake, recreate humanity after the original design by empowering you with the strength that you now need that has been lacking because of sin in our lives. And so I've entitled this message, uh, A New Creation. Uh, we heard one of the very best passages from Aubrey this morning out of 2 Corinthians that says, If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come, by which we are now empowered to be ambassadors of Jesus, asking the whole world to be reconciled to God. For God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, To be sin for who? To be sin for you and me. That you and I might therefore then inherit the righteousness of God and be used for good works on this earth. Jesus has enabled the church to be an example of a newness, a new creation, a new humanity. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing in Paul's master class for the new uh, burgeoning church that's growing in many areas uh, throughout Macedonia, uh, throughout Turkey and uh, the ancient Near East. You, you are seeing churches that are, that are gathering together. And this letter that we have recorded for us from Ephesus is that circular letter, letter of instruction. Today, we come to what is perhaps one of the most important passages in the entirety of the New Testament for crystallizing God's purpose in giving the gospel and the hope and good news through Jesus Christ. With that in mind, I want to invite you to please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. As we look through this passage, uh, I want to remind you where we've been and identifying Paul's theme of Jesus as the head for the church in giving us a new living hope in the resurrection and our hope for future resurrection, the power afforded to you and I for present transformation, that you will look like a new humanity here on this earth. And to be reminded of this concept that it's not by might or strength. Listen, church, it's not by you or anything that you can produce. As we have from Zechariah, the record of God's word given to Zerubbabel, it is by God's enablement. It's by his spirit that we find our strength. With that, we're going to read through the first 10 verses. Ephesians chapter 2, follow along with me. The Apostle Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Your Bible may say flesh. And following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace 
that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I have offered you an insert uh, this morning of sermon notes that are uh, meant to help us see the contrast that Paul is going to be making here between those who have faith in Jesus and those who do not. So we have two columns up here on the screen. One uh, where we're going to see the results and the characteristics of those who do not have faith in Jesus. And another, a second, uh, where we see those who do. Um, The first condition as we are looking through this for those without faith is death. The condition of your existence, the humanity that comes upon the earth... Without faith in Jesus, that humanity is dead. The Apostle Paul uses uh, six words repeated in the original language in verses 1 and verses 5 to help us understand this. Let me just draw your attention back there in verse 1. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now you need to remember the Apostle Paul doesn't put chapter breaks in his letter. And so you and I are going to get a better understanding of what he's trying to communicate if you just take a little peek back into chapter 1, because right at the very end of chapter 1, who was it that Paul was talking about? Go ahead, you can answer. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. Look with me at the very end here of chapter 1. And God placed all things under his feet, that's verse 22, and appointed him. Who's the him? Jesus. Jesus. To be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. Whose body? Say it good and loud. Jesus' body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Who is this? This is Jesus. And then he says, as for you. Notice what the apostle is doing. He's, He's posing for the readers, the Bible student, a contrast between you and Jesus. Because the condition of the human who lives without faith in Jesus is dead. You are dead in your transgressions. You are dead in your sins. If one wasn't enough, you'll see in verse 5 the repetition, even when we were dead in our transgressions. The good news for those who place their faith in Jesus is that your condition is now life. You are You're alive. You you have been resurrected spiritually and offered a great hope in the gospel of a physical resurrection at the return of Jesus. The word of God in the New Testament teaches us that as the trumpet sounds and the voice of the archangel, that the dead in Christ will be raised first. And then we who are still alive will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. That we as well will be able to clothe ourselves with incorruptibility and immortality. 
Not these bodies that wear down, not these bodies that continue to plague us and fight against the work of the Spirit. That is the hope that's given to us in Christ, and it is reality for you spiritually right now. You have life. You've had your eyes, the eyes of your heart, they've been opened. You've been awakened to truth. Now, there's some characteristics that follow from these, so that as we look into what Paul is describing for the Ephesians, when it comes to death, Um, The very first characteristic of that death for those who don't place their faith in Jesus, like Rosanna was helping us to see with the children, the message throughout the story of the Old Testament is placing your faith and your trust. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But for those who don't, why is death the characteristic and what does death look like? Well, number one, it looks like idolatry. What's the first commandment? Thou shall have no other gods. You, you may think that that's because of something God needs. God's fine, folks. He's fine. He, he, he's designed you to worship him. And so you will fail in the function of his design in your humanity as you worship other gods. And you and I might this morning say, well, that's fine, Pastor. I don't have any little idols in my house. Like, we don't have any false altars or temples like they did back then. Well, you know that's not true. Anything, hear me, church, anything that you would place higher than God in your life is an idol. And for the majority of us, it's ourselves. That we most frequently place ourselves as those who desire glory and honor and boasting and pride and look at me and what I can do. That's idolatry. Now, where does that come from? Look with me back into the text. It says in verse two, and the way you used to live when you followed two things in verse two, you guys with me? Followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Um, At one time in our Bible study, I remember looking at this and there was some confusion because the word spirit was used. And some thought, oh, is this talking about the Holy Spirit? Let me let me clear that up right now. This is not the Holy Spirit. This is referencing who? Do you know? This, This is the devil. The devil is created as an angel, an anointed cherub who in his heart said, I will exalt myself above the throne of God. That was the devil who said that. And in so doing, he was cast out of heaven. This from the book of Revelation, chapter 12. uh, The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. Look what he does. Leads the whole world astray. And so here in this text in verse 2, the idolatry comes as characterized by the spirit of the devil. Church, he is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is lying to you. This is not just a warning to those outside the church, all those poor lost souls outside the church. The devil wants to attack you. He's lying to you. He wants you to think that your opinion, your way, your works are what produce righteousness in your life. And I want you to understand very clearly this morning that that is idolatry. The second characteristic of death in our lives is uh, described by indulgence. If you continue with me, uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse 3, 
All of us also lived among them at one time. And look, look at the case of their lives. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. And following its desires and thoughts. I don't think I need to preach too heavily on this one. I think everybody hopefully is able to understand very acutely the way in which sin has infected your flesh and your desires. If we just take the five senses uh, this morning, the appetite for your eyes is lust and greed. The appetite for your ears is for gossip and self-acclamation. The the appetite for your nose and your, and your mouth and your tongue is for gluttony and more. And the appetite for your lips is to slander others, to speak against others. The Apostle Paul is being a little generous right here to the church in Ephesus. He says, you used to live that way. How are you doing this morning, church? You used to live that way? And you recognize the war, the battle that's being fought between the spirit and and the flesh, because death is characterized in our lives, not just by self-worship, but also by an indulgence of giving in to those desires. Thirdly, lastly, uh, death is ingrained in us. Uh, there's, there's two words that I feel like my translators here in the NIV have um, perhaps not done uh, particular nuance the way the Apostle Paul words it. If you look with me in verse 2, uh, my Bible reads at the end, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's not what the Greek says. It says sons of disobedience. Uh, that, that's the words that Paul wrote, sons of disobedience. And if you jump down a little bit further in um, verse, uh, verse 3, you'll see all of us at one time lived at... Uh, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires. Like the rest, we were by nature, and my NIV says, objects of wrath. Paul wrote, children of wrath. I, I, I want to make sure that we don't miss something that the Apostle Paul wrote in here because he said, you're sons of disobedience. He said, you're children of wrath. Why characterize those familial terms of sons and of children? And I believe the reason is because this is something that's woven all the way through you. It's not simply by nature of you having been born from sinners. Do you know your parents were sinners? Some of you are like, yeah, they were. That's why I'm screwed up. <laughs> it's not just that. That's true. You have inherited sin both from your parents as they inherited it from their parents as they inherited it from, you see where this goes? All the way back to Adam, but you also have sin imputed to you by the very first sinner. Adam, the first man, has characterized for everybody who comes after us a sin nature. Not just one that you say, and the world loves this, well, I can't help it. It's just the way I am. I was made this way. Cop out. You're lying to yourself. You're deceiving You've been given choices and you, listen, you choose to sin. And you do so because it's ingrained through you, you son of disobedience, you child of wrath. All of this, folks, is very bad news. But Paul's got good news. Because he says if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you can move from where? You can move from death to life. 
And this is not something you do. This is something that's given to you. And so the characteristics of life here are being saved, being raised, and being seated. Look with me back into the text. These are the three primary verbs that show up uh, starting in verse 5. <clears throat> I, I got to start in 4. One second here. I do apologize for my throat today. Verse 4 says, <clears throat> But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. There it is. You're made alive even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been what? Saved. You've been saved, church. <laughs> by grace you are saved. Look, verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ, and God seated us with him in the heavenly realms. You've been saved, you've been raised, and you've been seated. Now, let me time out here for a minute because clearly you're all here. So what, what does he mean? I, I want you to know what Paul is doing here is he is attaching a parallel to what he has just taught us back in chapter 1. If you look across the page or the margin there in your Bible, you see in verse 20 of chapter 1, he says the power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So who's been raised physically? Jesus. Jesus. Who's been seated physically? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus has those as realities, physical and spiritual realities for him. Now Paul parallels that physical reality of Jesus with a spiritual reality for you and I. You as well are now spiritually raised with Christ because of your union and your faith in Jesus. You as well are spiritually seated with Christ because of your union with Jesus. Is everybody understanding this? The, the, the focus of what Paul is doing here in teaching us the characteristics of being alive as being saved, raised, and seated is to is to underscore, is to emphasize our union with Christ. It's not that I can have a version of Christianity that rests upon my ability. Listen, you're doing it wrong. That is not the message of the gospel. That is not the good news of our faith. The only way in which this category, this condition of being alive is met is as we are seen in, un- in union with Jesus. That which is a physical reality for him is now offered to you through your faith graciously given as a spiritual reality as well for you and I. A couple more here. Secondly, our confidence. If you do not have faith in Jesus, your confidence is in self. If you look with me back into the text He says in verse 8, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. But if you don't have faith in Jesus, if instead you have put all of the eggs in the basket of something that you think you can do, do you know what you have? You just have yourself. That's all you have. Church, I want you to know how very frightening terrifying it would be if your eternal destiny was dependent on what you can do. Is anyone going to get there? Anybody? 
If your salvation relies on an ability of your obedience, hear me, you will fail. Every single human has failed at this except one. And his name is Jesus. The Apostle Paul had it better than anyone. Um, The Apostle Paul had a righteousness that was derived from himself characteristically better than anyone. I want to share with you how he records this in his letter to the Philippians. This is some small text up here, but follow along. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Watch this. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I'll beat you. I got got more than you. You you think you're good? You think you are obedient? Listen to me. The apostle Paul will kick your tail every day of the week. He's got more than you. And he proves it on this way. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, he was a Pharisee. Doesn't get any more righteous than that. As for zeal, he was persecuting the church. A lot of those guys talk a big talk. He had boots on the ground. He stoned him and put him to death. Can't compete with Paul. As for righteousness that was based on the law, watch this. Look at the guts here. Faultless, he says. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is on the basis of faith. Now, here's the problem. You, you might hear all this and say, okay, all right, I kind of get it. I want to I unveil a little bit of the devil's deception this morning. Because you know what the devil will cause you to do in your heart? You, you'll start to think, you know what? But God's not that strict. God, God loves everyone. He's, he's gonna, he's gonna, he knows I'm trying. I'm totally trying. I'm just, I'm just a person. I'm doing my best, man. I know I got faults. But I'm still a good person. And you will begin to think that way. And what you'll end up doing is you will be deceived. I want you to hear Jesus's words. You tell me if he sounds like he's lowering the bar. This is from Matthew 5. Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What do you think? Is Jesus lowering the bar? But do you know what the devil will make you think? Make you think that he is. And so we are deceived. And the root of this, the root of it, is idolatry. Do you remember? Do you remember we looked at it already? The, the first characteristic of death following after the ways of the devil is idolatry. Um, right after this passage, by the way, Jesus is going to give a teaching that's referencing the way in which so many of these individuals that wanted to distort God's uh, judgment um, handled and mishandled, I might say, the Ten Commandments. How about you? How, how are you doing on the Ten Commandments? Jesus is going to say, you, you've heard it said, don't murder. Raise your hand if you've murdered someone. <laughs> Probably shouldn't. I might call the cops. 
all of the Pharisees, all the Jews, they're like, yeah, we don't murder. But Jesus says, but I say to you, anybody who, who is thinking evil in their hearts, calling their brother, you fool. That person who in their heart is transgressing the law of do not murder, you will be guilty of judgment. Oh, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's right. That's right. Never committed adultery. What does Jesus say? But I say to you, any man that looks at a woman lustfully in his heart has already committed adultery where? In his heart. You, you and I, this is the lie of the devil. We will think that God's not going to really be that hard on us. And what does Jesus say? Your righteousness must surpass these guys. Otherwise, you're never going to make it in. If you're claiming self as your hope, right? That's what I'm clinging to. My confidence is all in myself. You and I are, are in deep, deep waters and we are deceived. Do you want to know where we're deceived? We're deceived from the garden all the way back in the garden of Eden because not a single one of us wants to hear that you're not able I know it sounds like I might be a little preachy on this. Go with me just another minute. And th- there's a reason why. Your natural tendency, if you do not proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ as your only hope and confidence, your natural tendency will be to go back to yourself, to think that you're a good person because of your obedience. That will be what you will accidentally drift back to time and time again because none of us wants to hear that we are unable. I, I want you to catch a little bit of good news that Paul gives in Romans chapter 5. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Is there anyone here ungodly? Raise your hand. This is really good news for you. This is really good news. Because by virtue of you raising your hand, you're saying my confidence is totally not in myself. I'm not putting all my eggs in the self basket at all. Why? Because in myself, what am I? I'm powerless in myself. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were awful, terrible, no good sinners. While we were sinners, what does Jesus do? He dies for us. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. Can I say it again? So really make sure that we don't give the devil a foothold on this one. You cannot save yourself. And the more that you get deceived by this, because this is the worst part, not only, not only, Are we deceived? We want to be deceived. We want to think we are. And so this is what the devil does. He works these justifications into our minds and into our hearts. Three ways I want to offer them to you. Number one, you end up lowering God's standards. You you just think, well, God's... By the way, I don't have this in your sermon notes. It's worth recording, though. Um, This is what you do. You, You will think that God's just not that harsh. And so you will then distort God's judgment... Or thirdly and lastly, you'll elevate yourself. It's one of those three things that the devil is going to do in your life. And do you know where we first see these happen? The first place where we see a lowering of God's standards, a distortion of God's judgment, and an elevation of ourselves is in Genesis chapter 3. It's all the way back 
in the garden. This is why the children of wrath and the sons of disobedience, those familial ingrainedness terms, are so critical for us to understand the battle we're up against. This is what it says in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did did you catch them? Do you see the three of them in there? Where, Where is the lowering of God's standards? It's right here. It's the devil. Did God really say, God's not that harsh? I, I don't know if you can believe that, all that in there. That's just what one preacher says. That's the, that's the first deception. You will lower God's standards. What about this? A denial or a distortion of his judgment. Did you catch it? God said the day you eat of it, you will what? What's the devil say? You, know. you, you, just, you just changed what God said. And it was in the category of his judgment. You will distort God's judgment. Or the last thing you're going to do is you're going to end up thinking really highly of yourself. Did you catch that in here? Here it is. For God knows that when you eat of it, ooh, it's going to be awesome. You're going to love it. Your eyes will be open. And you will be like God. What's that called? Putting yourself up to God's level. What's the word for that? Idolatry. The elevating of yourself. It's ingrained in us. And so Eve looks at the fruit She's that's good looking, good for gaining wisdom. She got that lie from the devil. She takes it, eats it, she gives it to her husband. Without faith in Jesus, your confidence is in self. But with faith in Jesus, watch this now, our confidence is in Christ. Look with me back into the text, verse five. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. In fact, if you were to just take a pen and look through this little passage, you're going to see a phrase, a little prepositional phrase that's used over and over, with Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in Christ. What's Paul trying to do? He's trying to emphasize to us the importance of our unity, that unifying feature of being with Christ. All right, if you got that, let's move on to number three. Um, Without faith in Jesus... Your credit is by works. If you don't have faith in Jesus, the only thing you have to bank on are your works. How well you follow God's law. How did Adam and Eve do? How many laws did God give? They, They had one rule. One. Just one. Couldn't even follow one. Not a single person has been able to follow God's rules from that moment forward, except again, Jesus Christ. And so without faith in him, your, your only hope are your works. Did you hear the message this morning? Sadie read it from Isaiah. It's a really important passage. Um, the beauty of it ends with a confession that we are, we are God's clay that he can make into a pot. And it's by virtue of his crafting that utility is returned to you and I. But without that, when we just work out of our own strength, Isaiah 64 said, our righteous acts are what? Filthy 
rags. The verse before it talks about uncleanliness. And so this is a direct reference. Filthy rags is a euphemism used in, in Hebrew to refer to menstruation cloths, which I don't think I need to get into detail with this morning, right? Uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a vast, stunning, offensive type of illustration that's meant to show you what your righteousness looks like before God. That's what your works look like in your strength, in your glory. The very best you can do is filthy rags without Jesus. And some might think, like the Pharisees did, that they're keeping the law. And externally it might look that way when all the while God and you know what's going on below the surface with anger, with lust, with this Desire to prove that I am God, I have got it all together. By the way, that's all you have. That's all you have are your own works. Watch this passage from James chapter 2. James writes, For whoever keeps the whole law. That's awesome, right? Who, who did we already see this morning that said he could do that? You remember that? Who was it that said, You, you got confidence in the flesh? I got more. What was his name? Paul. Paul kept the whole law. He was sure of it until the law said, Don't covet. Darn it. You know what? Every other one of those laws you could try to keep. But coveting happens where? Happens in your heart. And so Paul knows it and God knows it. Look what James says. You keep the whole law and yet you stumble at one point. Do you know what that person is guilty of? All of it. And so you tell me how good are your works at this point? Because without faith in Jesus, that's all you have. Filth, filth, trash. This is what the Apostle Paul then said. Do you remember it in Philippians? He said, I consider him what? I consider it rubbish. Scuba is in Greek. It's refuse. It's poo. It's something to be thrown out. But if you have faith in Jesus, do you know what your credit is by? Your credit is by grace. Your credit is by grace. Look with me back into the text. This is worth underlining, circling. Verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved. Now, what's the problem with grace? I was thinking of this as I was trying to prepare this message. Why, why, why do people even struggle with this? Who doesn't want grace? Do you know who doesn't want grace? Idolaters don't want grace. Because grace is an admission of needing mercy. Grace is a humbling position. I want you to see this passage that Jesus, uh, Jesus tells from Luke chapter 18. Jesus says to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. I'm not like those other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this crummy tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified. Justified means he received the pardoning grace of God because he recognized his need for mercy. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I was thinking of um, Emily and I when we argue uh, because I'm never wrong. 
and she's never wrong. <laughs> Anybody else ever have this occur? Yeah. Well, what's the problem in those moments? The problem is neither, neither one of us, maybe you're like me or maybe this is just me, neither one of us wants to admit that we might have an error in us. It's a kind of slippery idolatry where we're placing ourselves high. And without that humility, to be willing to say that I need help, that I am wrong, you will only have your works. And you will always see grace as an offense. Because do you know what grace is doing? Grace is killing false gods. There is, there is a war that's happening. And when you place yourself up here, the reason why grace becomes offensive is because the only access you have to grace is if this person goes from here down to here. And those false gods of our own making are being demolished by grace. And you and I, when we don't want to receive grace, we resist it. We fight like little soldiers of the devil, not wanting to be defeated of the idolatry of our own self-righteousness. That's why grace is offensive. And what does Jesus say? To all those who exalt themselves, they're going to be humbled. But those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. I want you to know with great uh, thanksgiving today that if your faith is in Jesus, your credit of salvation is a free grace of God. Lastly, our conclusion from this, if you don't have faith in Jesus, your conclusion will be self-righteousness. That's where you will land. If you look back with me in the text again in verse 8, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that, what? What's it say? No one can boast. I want you to know the Bible has a lot, a lot, a lot to say about boasting. Just for sake of time, I have not included all those passages. I just want to give you a key concept that the Apostle Paul returns to. He says, the thing that I will boast in is not my strengths, but my what? But my weaknesses For it's in my weaknesses, it's in my undeservingness that God is shown to be elevated as high. That's the very best thing that we need. But if you don't have faith in Jesus, all you have is self-righteousness. It's giving credit to yourself. I had a, uh, I had a nightmare this week. It was at the, it was about three in the morning. And what I dreamed was, the, after our, our church was able to be purchased, we, we were all of us, all of us here, we were in a meeting and we were trying to think about how happy we were now that that whole transition was past us. And, and someone started to want to give credit to, to who, who is it that we should thank uh, for this? And, and someone mentioned, well, this person worked really hard. And, and so the, the little cup, I, for some reason in my dream, I had all the thanks and Everybody was like your little names written on these cups. And so we'd pour, we'd pour out some of the thanks, some of the credit due to this person. But then someone else was like, well, don't forget about that person over there and what they did. So we, we'd pour some here. But then that person saw what this person got and said, well, they don't deserve that much. Like, sure, a little bit. But what about all these other people? And in my nightmare, what started to happen was this little bickering of credit and merit that started to go around. And there, there was no way to divide it up evenly. And slowly, little by little, the church started to argue and fight and divide. If you don't have faith in Jesus, this is exactly what self-righteousness breeds in our hearts. Self-righteousness is the, is the source of all division. 
Self-righteousness leads to judgment of others, not to judgment of self. Self-righteousness leads to legalism. You've got to do it this way, just like that. And if you're not doing it just right, then you're condemned. Self-righteousness leads to stealing glory from God. And that's what you get. If you don't have faith in Jesus, we all of us are left with the merit of our own works that leads to self-praise, self-boasting, as it says in verse 9. But if you do have faith, your conclusion is a new creation. Look with me in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. Do you know God's a carpenter too? (laughs) You, You and I were on the burn pile. That's where we were. We were the firewood. And the carpenter comes and he takes these unworthy pieces and begins to mold them and craft them and give them purpose. The Bible says you've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. So what do we do with this? And I want to thank you for your attention this morning. Three critical conclusions. These are, these are absolutely critical. This is why this passage is in the top five most important passages of the entire New Testament. Number one is this. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. I'm so thankful for Rosanna's message this morning to the children because she was able to show this to be God's strategy from day one. Every single Old Testament saint who is active in doing good for God did so on the basis of their trust and their faith in God and his promises. That's where salvation comes from. Secondly is this, those who are saved by Jesus are God's new creation, created to do good works. Those saved by Jesus are God's new creation. You're brand new. I brought with me today um, my Milwaukee power drill. This baby goes 850 RPMs, 8 amps. (laughs) Ready? What's wrong with it? Dead. Well, what if I just give it some more oomph? That'll, that'll do it? A yeah. L- little bit more of my effort, my work. Will that, will that, will that make it come alive? Mm-hmm. No, do you know what it needs? It needs a power source uh, foreign from itself. It needs a power source right here. You know, I pulling the trigger. Watch this. Some of you may wonder why the pastor drilled a hole through the pulpit. (laughs) What I want you to do is I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this because it's not by power, not by might or strength. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And just like we had the uh, power go off from time to time, we needed an external source right here. This external source. I want you to know there's only two options when it comes to salvation. You are God. Works of grace. It's one or the other. It is not, hear me loud and clear. It is not 
that God gives you 99% of the way and you just make up the, the little distance on your own by your obedience or righteousness. What, what's 99% of the way getting me? Still works. Still works, not grace. It's not by might. It's, I mean, 99.9. Look at that. Is it working now? No. It is either all of God, all of Jesus, or all of me. I'm hoping that this becomes just a palpable reminder for us that you and I stick to the truth of this, that those who are saved by Jesus are now new creation, empowered by the Spirit to work the way we were designed to work and to do good works. Thirdly and lastly is this, God's purpose for saving sinners by his grace is to show the glory of God. Um, this is something that Paul's been hinting to already in his letter. I, I, I want you to just quick look across the page. Back in chapter 1, he says in verse 6, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, jump down to verse 12 in chapter 1. He says, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his what? For the praise of his glory. I want you to see back in our text this morning, verse 7. Well, we'll start in six. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? In verse seven. Here you go. You ready for this? Verse seven. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. There it is. Same thing he's been saying in chapter one. The reason why God has done this is so that glory is given to who? And God alone. So what do you and I do with this today? I want to wrap this up. I do have some more verses, but just bear with me for a few more minutes on this. My challenge to you is to put to death the striving of self-righteousness. Put to death the striving of self-righteousness. Here's a really good diagnostic question for you to ask yourself to see how you're doing on this. It's, It's an old adage. You've heard it before from many preachers. Let's say you died and you... Come before the pearly gates in heaven. And the angel in charge looks upon you and says, how'd you get here? (laughs) why, Why should I let you in? If your answer has anything to do with you, you are failing at this. You, You should let me in because I fast twice a week. Because I give a tenth of all... Do you see the problem? If ever your answer has to do with you, you are failing at this. I want to offer you really good verses here quickly. This is from Galatians. The Apostle Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. That's the challenge. Remember, put to death. He says, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could have been gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the spirit? Are you not trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. So I ask you again, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you have heard? 
He says this in Romans 7, so my brothers and sisters, by the way, this is the great summary of Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Here it is in like one verse. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Hopefully, as you've been through this lesson this morning, you're able to see that as a summary of everything. One more question here as to the purpose of the law. This is from Galatians 3. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. All the law does is show you that you don't keep it. You can't keep it. You always fail. Salvation is not by works. It's by grace. Number two, place your trust and faith. How about that, Roseanne? Same message. Place your trust and faith in God's gift of righteousness through Jesus. Again, the diagnostic question. The angel looks down at you somehow wandering, made your way to the pearly gates. How in the world did a sinner like you get here? You must be lost. Why should I let you in? And you answer with, Jesus invited me. It was Jesus. I'm... I'm totally lost. <laughs> I'm just following Jesus. Like Jesus said, I am the way. And so I'm following him. And when I follow him, it led me here. How did I get here? And why should you let me in? Because I want to follow Jesus. That needs to be your answer to the question. And you'll be able to tell very quickly as to how much of your trust you have placed. By that, I mean your faith. Faith, we don't mean you believe in God. Everybody believes in God. If they don't believe in God, they're lying to themselves. Even demons believe. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about exactly what you saw from Roseanne up here with the children. That faith is belief in action. If I called Lane up here and we asked Lane to fall. Lane, you, you think I could catch you? Yes or no? You can answer. Do you think I could catch you? Yeah. Dude, look at me. I, I, <laughs> you, could, you could totally trust me, Lane. I will catch you. He'll, he'll say, yeah, I believe that. How do you know he believes it? Not until he what? Not until he actually puts into action that faith. This is exactly what James means when he talks about the works that flow from faith. Not that your works save you. But faith that's alone is not a living faith. You need a faith that's visible, that can be seen. And you have that when you place your trust in God's gift of righteousness. Uh, This passage from Romans 4. Now to the one who works. There you go. You work. What do you expect to get when you work? Everybody say, pay me my money. Pay me my money. The wages are not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Who's it depend on? You or Jesus? Jesus. All depends on Jesus. If you're working for it, you're going to get what you deserve. And that's a life estranged for all eternity from the God who is holy. It is only the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and you placing your trust in him that will deliver to you righteousness. Lastly is this. You and I need to learn to discover and to walk in the good works that God has prepared for you, which will glorify him. One last thing as we wrap up. This concept of good works for Paul in the book of Ephesians is expected to be seen in the church. I just want to draw you to two passages as we finish. Back in verse, 
I'm sorry, back in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the what? For the church. And if you advance to chapter 3, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. Look with me in verse 10 of chapter 3. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Here's what I want you to know. This one right here, discover and to walk in the good works that God's prepared for you. You are getting rehearsal right now. I, I, I know I'm going a little long this morning, and I thank you, and you're going to have to stick around and help to carry stuff up. You're going to be totally hungry. You're going to miss the game. Whatever. I'm sorry. You're getting practice right now. And so here's the diagnostic question I want to leave with you. When you think about this one, how, how am I doing to discover good works and to walk in good works? Ask yourself the question, what do you think it's going to be like in heaven? How do you expect your neighbor to treat you in the new heavens and new earth? Right? God's going to resurrect you. You're going to have a home with him. There's going to be a brand new earth that doesn't have corruption. You're going to be able to, as Isaiah said, uh, live in homes that you build. What do you expect your relationship to be like with your neighbor in the new heavens and new earth? And let me then just encourage you, this is rehearsal for that right now. Because God's design is to recreate humanity. I'm going to make a new humanity right now. It's going to look like the people who worship me and gather together in the church. And in so doing, you will be a new creation. Amen. Let's pray.